takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 74 from 1986. We have Psycho 3. Wow, 74 episodes. Man, you've come a long way, Mike. Yeah, chugging along, still going. You know, I've been stabbed a few times by that crazy guy who runs the hotel, but you can't keep me down. By the way, I am your host, Michael Bates. This evening, but joining me tonight, he used to be my horror consultant on the show, but he is now the co-host with me over on the Monsters That Made Us. Please welcome the invisible Dan Cologne. Hey, hey, hey. I love coming on this show so much, Mike. I love talking horror movies with you, so uh, really looking forward to this one. So I have sort of not an ulterior motive because I wanted you on my show because I love talking to you because we have our show and I have a bunch of horror part threes to get through, so hopefully we might do a couple of these together over the next few months. I'm not trying to like back you into a corner, Dan. I'm just putting it out there as a, as a suggestion. I've sent you a partial list. There's a lot of bangers we still got to cover. And while we are on hiatus over on the Monsters That Made Us, maybe this could give something the fans to listen to, to, you know, that miss our lovely voices. Just putting that out there. It just occurred to me that we're, we're taking a break with the Monsters That Made Us, and then we're going to spend the whole summer recording episodes of Third Time's a Charm, which, you know, not going to complain about that. The break is really just for me because you know how much time and effort I put into uh, the monsters that made us, and really that's that's the break. This show, no time and effort whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, and, and and the people who listen know that, and that's why they listen. You know, it's just <laughs> cut to the chase. As the guest, you know how how much easier it is to like totally. just come on and, and and talk for an hour, an hour and a half. So cool. So let's get right into it. Psycho three. You know this series, the Psycho series. You know, I feel like most people are like, Psycho, you know, one of the greatest horror movies of all time. No objection there. But I feel like part two and especially part three, I mean, and the rest of these sequels, they get overlooked. People aren't even aware that they exist. It's sort of like lost the time in a way that like the Jaws sequels and the Superman sequels and things like that have not been. And the worse those got, the kind of like kitschier and, and more fun they became in a way to watch. These just kind of disappeared for a while in my opinion well i think i think part of that has to do with the fact that the jaws sequels in particular get a lot of tv play you know that's how i originally saw jaws 2 and jaws 3 and jaws 4 is some network maybe it was tbs or usa or whatever would do a saturday afternoon and show all four jaws movies it wasn't until i got older and i you know i uh, like bought a collection of them that i actually sat down and really committed to them and same with psycho although i have an interesting history with the Psycho sequels. So Psycho, the, the original, is one of the earliest horror films I saw in my life. Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, uh, uh, Sir Alfred Hitchcock, right? You know, the, the master of macabre and suspense, the man who changed the game. I grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents at my grandparents' house. Dan, can I just say real quick, your grandparents sound awesome because... <laughs> On several shows, you've talked about all these great shows and influences that they've exposed you to as a young kid. And I love and loved Alfred Hitchcock Presents as much as I loved The Twilight Zone back in the day. And so to hear that just makes me happy. I think I've mentioned this on The Monsters That Made Us, but uh, briefly, Friday nights, my parents would go out. 
every week. And my grandparents were always uh, close by. So it became just tradition that every Friday night, I would spend the night at my grandparents' house. And this is like, we're talking like early 90s. Nick at Night was something that my grandparents and I could watch together. At the time, Nick at Night was I Love Lucy. And, you know, a lot of old black and white shows, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I'm pretty sure was on there. Uh, I can't think of any other reason I would have been watching it at that time because TV Land wasn't created yet. Really, Nick at Night was what shaped a lot of my childhood. And so I grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Hitchcock was a big part of my childhood. You know, Psycho, again, one of the first horror films I ever saw and like loved. Partially because, you know, it's not terribly scary by today's standards, right? So as a kid, I could watch it. I mean, it's really just suspense and I could handle that level of suspense as a child. At some point, I remember catching Psycho 4, The Beginning on television. Okay, yeah, yeah, the, the, the prequel. Yes. Yeah, the, the something of an inspiration for the television show, Bates Motel. Yes, and I got sucked into that. And for a long time, I was really just familiar with Psycho and Psycho 4. And then I didn't come to like own any of the sequels until much, much, much later, probably after college. I finally like I bought my copy of Psycho, probably around college time. And then uh, at some point I found like the collection, the you know, the four pack. So it had all four movies. Actually, no, the, fir- the first collection I found, I think, was all of the sequels. So Psycho 2, 3, 4. Yes. And then Bates Motel. Oh, OK. Yeah. The one I have is just Psycho 2 three and four. So I have one separate. (laughs) Right. And then I eventually got the Blu-ray, which has all four of the movies, no Bates Motel. So anyway, for a long time, it was, it was just Psycho and Psycho 4. And then uh, sometime within the past few years, I finally saw Psycho 2 and 3. There was a point at which I I got off my high horse, so to speak, and decided that I was going to watch Psycho 2 and 3, right? Because I think there was a part of me that, that believed, okay, how can you make a sequel to Psycho? There's no way it can be any good. But there was something to me because, um, Anthony Perkins is in them. It's not like they just, you know, did like a sequel and Norman Bates isn't in it or they recast it. You know, there's something sacred about doing a sequel with Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Now, if I may interject quickly, not only is he in it, he's directing part three. Okay. So eventually he takes over the reins. He knows the material so well. Secondly, like these are direct sequels, so they don't discard anything that comes previously. And third, it's not like, Vince Vaughn going right. on here, right? Okay, like that I do have a little bit of an issue with those, the the remake, even though it is kind of a very unique thing. But like, I don't like that as much as this stuff. So like, I, I kind of take these sequels better than the remakes. Like, I don't think there was ever a period where I was exposed to these sequels and didn't like them. I think I, as soon as I saw Psycho 2, I thought, oh, I've been missing out. And then I watched Psycho 3 and I thought, oh, this is fun too. I, I sort of immediately realized that the sequels are really fun and are not a stain on the psycho legacy like at all you know like i'm so afraid that they would be i think more people should check them out definitely i mean my journey i don't feel is like too dissimilar i grew up loving hitchcock stuff i love psycho i love the birds i love rear window that's why i love fright night so i actually feel like fright night is better than rear window the source wow. of <laughs> i don't know you throw a vampire into it <laughs> and it just made it so much better but i discovered these i think in college during like a uh, completionist season one year um, where i'm just like sitting down and like all right every hitchcock movie i missed or whatever or like i'm getting along going through hitchcock and i come to the psycho series i'm like oh okay i haven't hit this yet like let's let's do these and i was also kind of taken aback in a good way i was like first off 
where were these this whole time? Now, now, granted, they're they're '80s films, so it's not like they'd have been around for like 20 years or whatever. You know, they are sort right. of by the time I'm discovering them, 20 years old, but they're not that old. I was like scratching my head, like, why haven't I really heard of these movies? I kind of figured they'd be out there somewhere, uh, and I just figured like they were buried because they were bad, right? But I'm watching Psycho 2, and I'm like, well, Anthony Perkins is back, and and they're really kind of getting into the. It's a character study. I like the stuff with Meg Tilly in the second one. I think is what's going yep. on at the diner yep. uh, and then the lady who's actually his aunt who's pretending to be his mom might have killed his father like they get it you know i kind of, i just like the world of psycho the way they're kind of slowly expand upon uh, away from the hotel little by little and all of that kind of stuff but where psycho 2 is kind of just like a very nice kind of like by the book like okay they did it like they didn't fuck it up they kind of follow similar beats but make it different enough you know the marion it's not marion she's not a blonde meg tilly's got black hair this and that and then we get to psycho three and it's almost like this thing you kind of see in part threes every once in a while but rarely where it's like they go nuts like they just go crazy and they just kind of feels like you know let's see how much we could really get away with let's get back into unnerving horror elements let's let's pull kind of from all of hitchcock more of hitchcock i feel like there's a lot of vertigo in this sure there's more bones of of other material here of his campier livelier like it's 86 so like it feels more like that it feels more like an independent film and it just feels like they were given free reign like we're not expecting much from this right now part two was fine but like where do you go from there and the answer is you can't really imagine because like this movie just does like insane stuff and it's one it becomes like one of those watches for me every time i watch it it's like oh my god i forget how crazy this gets oh my god like i forget how crazy this gets and so like i'm sitting back like loving the psycho sequels uh, hoping that they catch on again at some i'm glad we're starting what might be our little summer of horror series with psycho 3 yeah i think where these overall succeed for me because you know there's so many ways that a sequel to psycho could go wrong Right. I think it's it's very easy to imagine all sorts of really awful decisions that just take a psycho sequel and just take the whole franchise off the rails, right? In a bad way. But I think the reason why they do sort of honor the original film in their own way is that Norman is relatively unchanged. You know, he's still kind of stuck in that arrested development from the 60s. The house and the motel are pretty much in the same condition, but the world around them has changed, right? I think that's a natural progression. Now we're kind of in the world of like, we're in the 80s and we're we're kind of starting to get into that sleazy 80s slasher vibe stylistically. I can imagine this is the same motel house and protagonist from that original movie. It's not like they just morph them into some ridiculous version, right? They feel consistent while the world around them has changed. They're all relics of the 60s and now we're in the sleazy 80s. The first sequel, Psycho 2, I find to be a more legitimate sequel I don't feel it goes full sleaze, whereas I think part three is like, okay, fuck it. We're now in slasher territory. We're going to have some more fun kills. They go batshit with the lighting. I think that's sort of what you were referring to when you mentioned Vertigo, right? Like the lighting here is insane. And the opening sequence. Yes, that as well. Yeah, this, this this feels like a drive-in horror film. 
I personally feel like Anthony Perkins is killing it with this. Yeah. Like he knows, I feel like just what to do to inject new life. And it's not so much with the plot because it's kind of going to be what a, a requel in a little bit. Like, I guess that it feels a little bit like a scream movie in that sense where it's like, we're going to have callbacks and, and replay beats and things like that, but they're going to like end differently and involve different characters and be flipped a little bit. It's in the directing. It's in like the crazy lighting and the mood and the atmosphere, the insane ADR work that is going on. Oh, yeah. some of this. But also the acting, Jeff Fahey, yeah, oh my God, Jeff Fahey. And, and Diane Scarwood, like she is amazing at times in this. Maureen and, uh, you know, yeah. Tracy, the detective or the reporter. It's all of those extra elements that are sort of amped up and and almost to a point of like surrealism at times. Like I do feel like I'm tripping uh, at times during this movie. And it's not really intended to be a, is he crazy? Is he not hearing voices? Like it's very obvious, like, what they want us to think like no norman it has like reverted he's talking to mother again this and that but at one point in the movie i'm going like is he dreaming like is this you know like i just feel like it it pulls those tricks really well on top of resorting maybe back to what hitchcock was doing with the violence and being able to get away with it now because it's the 80s and everyone's doing it so nudity blood all of that stuff is here it's going to be really tough to talk about this without referring to Psycho 2. I know this is third time's a charm, so I'll try to do my best. This one is more of a direct sequel to Psycho 2 than Psycho 2 is to the, to the original because the whole Mrs. Spool connection, right? You kind of have to understand where she originated, and that's all in Psycho 2. There's very little of that here, but you're right. I, I almost always forget this takes place like directly after as opposed to like 20 years later. But I find that the script for Psycho to has more surprises in it that's much more of a scream-esque sequel because i think there's really like there's like two killers spoiler alert meg tilly uh, is is the daughter of lila who is marion crane's sister played also played by vera miles she comes back which is awesome and so lila and her daughter mary are sort of co-killers in that driving norman insane yes. right they have this grudge and they try to frame him for these murders to send him back to prison, right? That's the whole plot of Psycho 2. The end of Psycho 2 establishes that Norman is innocent of those murders. However, he kills Mrs. Spool in the, in the final yes. moments. And then we know he's not cured, right? He's still insane. Okay, so Psycho 3, for me, like, you know Norman's crazy. Right. And he is the one killing everybody in this movie. And so it doesn't have those same kinds of surprises. I find myself just waiting for him to just kill the next person. So I don't think the script is as strong in that regard, but I do love it for the other ways that it like subverts some expectations. Like there's a shower scene that doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. He dressed his mother, he pulls the shower curtain and his victim has attempted suicide. So I love that. I love when it subverts uh, expectation. You know, there's other, like I said, the lighting, there's there's some really great stylistic choices. That's the strength of Psycho 3 for me. I feel that definitely. Now, what's interesting though, is if you just watch Psycho 3 on its own, you have to play a little bit of catch up. I hadn't watched Psycho 2 in a long time. I had wanted to watch, you know, the, fir- the first two in this in preparation, but I just didn't have the time. And so I'm watching Psycho 3 and I'm going like, I'm like, okay, where are we starting? What's going on here? Right. And then they start mentioning, you know, missing persons, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, right, right. His his not mother from part 
too. Like it's all sort of flooding back to me. And then he starts yeah. talking to mother again and all this stuff. And there's something about knowing from the start he is already gone that puts me on edge a little more than I was expecting. Like, cause you don't get that from part one, even, you know, you don't, you know, at part one, you don't know Norton's the killer. That's the big twist at the end, you know? And like in this, the sort of absence of any attempt to play that part, to, to mimic that about the, uh, the series to try and top itself with like an O Henry kind of twist or anything like that, I think opens it up to him joining the ranks of the slashers you know like norman is now sort of out as it were in a lot of ways to the audience at least to be like i could snap at any second or like anyone no one's safe like everyone could be a victim and like i'm watching anthony perkins performance and i'm really feeling him try to like not kill people this entire movie right that is like kind of part of the fun i'm having with this movie is is kind of knowing who the killer is that he just he's trying not to kill anybody and all these all these really being told to do is to kill everybody <laughs> i would have a little more fun with that if the if the murder scenes weren't still orchestrated as though we don't know who it is it's not like we see norman in the dress kind of struggling with the impulse, right? Or like, there's never a point in the movie where I'm seeing a victim like walking into a room and I'm like, no, don't go in there. You know, because like Norman's in there. They still shoot the scenes. They still block them as though we don't know who the killer is. So if that's the case, I kind of feel like I would like to, to have seen just, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen a little more of that struggle connected to the murder scenes. So knowing that Norman is the murderer is fine so i think because i know it i do still kind of appreciate that they like keep him in shadow i still kind of enjoy that because i think the visual of anthony perkins in the mother costume is inherently silly i think if we were to see his face okay so i think that you know because the movie doesn't give us those moments where norman is struggling like right up to the moment of of the kill and that we do know that it's him i still kind of appreciate that he's still blacked out like in silhouette yeah. Because I, th- I think the image of Norman Bates or Anthony Perkins in a dress with the wig is inherently silly. I think it's too silly. Even at the end of this, I thought it was chilling at the end of this. I thought that was why they were sort of keeping him out of view, partially because, like you say, like it's the iconic vision is like sort of like the face and shadow. You get the wig and the dress with the knife. And then like, what? I think you get one shot at it. I think if the whole movie were just Anthony Perkins in drag, it would get tired you only get to do that at the end if we saw his face clearly it might be too much so i I do like that his face is constantly blacked out we know it's norman but i don't know i kind of stylistically i kind of like that they keep him in silhouette so let's go through the flick a little bit you know let's go through it there's a lot of holy moly moments in this and it opens with a huge one and as soon as the movie started i was like oh Right. We're not wasting any time. And we're introduced to Maureen and she's at a convent and she's at the top of the bell tower and she's going to jump off. She feels like she's been infected by devils or something. And she accidentally causes one of the nuns that's trying to help her to fall down the bell well of the tower and plummet to her death she gets booted from the convent. She has to walk across the desert and hitchhike and holy mackerel Dan. 
Like, yeah. what an opening. Yeah, like, this is sort of, like, what I was talking about as far as how this one kind of, like, leans into that 80s sleaze, kind of a drive-in movie. Like, this is insane. This is not the sort of, this is almost non-sploitation opening Psycho 3. It's a hell of a way to introduce our main character, pretty much, like, one of the three leads. Yeah, I mean, it wakes you up, that's for sure. Now, do you recognize this actress from anything? I only, I knew her from, it was bugging me, but there's one major thing that I know her from. I didn't recognize her specifically from something, although I do know she's in the 1983 film Silkwood, which I I talked about on on my other show, The Podcast Around the Corner, where we talk all about Nora Ephron films. That's one of Nora's best films in my opinion uh but she has a a role in that but i didn't see her face and say oh that's her you know like i i I couldn't place her immediately okay i recognized her from mommy dearest she plays the grown-up christina crawford joan crawford's adopted daughter in that movie who ended up writing the book that the movie's based on and she's in some other kind of weird movie like strange invaders like what lies beneath i feel like psycho three is like perfect a perfect role for this actor she nails the whole like suicidal disillusioned drifter that is just looking for direction and like i mean attempts to commit suicide how many times in this movie two three times see the thing about this movie is like there's some like really heavy moments that kind of fly by and like treated without that weight i think like this opening sequence with the hysteric with like how hysterical it is you kind of can't help but like laugh a little bit at at (laughs) how over the top it is later when norman finds her and she's slit her wrists in the bathtub like it interrupts her potential murder you know so you're so caught off guard i'm not laughing but i'm like i'm not like i feel like the um the breath is taken out of it in a way you know the impact is a little different about it and in the next scene when Fahey picks her up, talk about sleazy, Dan. Like, there's some really, like, thematical and visual troubling things in this movie. But I'm never looking away as if it's, like, Lars von Trierish or anything like that. Anthony Perkins, not Anthony Hopkins, in his direction, like, knows how to kind of keep it camp and keep it, like, in the horror realm and not get it taken, like, quite so seriously. Throughout, even when, when really bad things are going on there is some level of camp that keeps it from really delving into like depressing territory yes the character of Dwayne duke he's a piece of shit right but because they cast jeff fahey there is some kind of likability to that character i think that like if you could cast somebody else and they'd play it and they'd be completely despicable but because it's jeff fahey like i, I have fun watching him play duke in this movie, even though he is doing some despicable things. Like he almost sexually assaults this woman. He still treats that other woman in this movie like absolute shit when he kicks her out of his room like half naked. So yeah, he's not a good dude. This might be my favorite Jeff Fahey performance. It's a really crazy character because like... I don't, I don't like the guy, but I like the character. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Yes, like, I think that's sort of what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's one of those like just total pieces of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, sloppy steaks for days with this guy. But like, it's so much fun to watch, and he's doing so much weird shit. Like, he's given free reign to like express himself 
as an actor, I feel like everybody is kind of given free reign in within within the confines of their character. This guy, well, he's going cross country, picking up hitchhikers, uh, trying to be a musician. He stops in this small town. He wants to save money to get to California and stuff. And like along the way, like he's just going to try and bang as many chicks along the way. Real dirtbag. But like <laughs> makes it so much fun to watch. And, and that at one point you actually feel, or at least I did, that he's going to kind of come around and drop that shit shit and maybe save the day but then like no he blackmails norman <laughs> yeah. at the end of the movie and thinks he's gonna actually like get away with something if you only knew who this guy was yeah he's not a complex guy and he really doesn't have much of a character arc he's pretty consistent from from top to bottom which you know i, I guess is good because that means that he's gonna die by the end given the the shit heel behavior he kind of deserves to the fact that he brings it on himself in the in the final moments of this movie it's that to me it's it's perfect for him but you know i, I was just thinking of something uh so in regards to diana scarwood She's giving me re- real like Veronica Cartwright vibes throughout this whole movie, like with all of the shit she's going through to bring it back to kind of Hitchcock because Veronica Cartwright was in The Birds. But I always think of her as like, like she was so great at playing Terrorized, you know, from Alien, The Birds, uh-huh. uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, always great at just being under constant duress. And I feel like she's playing that a little bit here. Diana Scarwit, you know, oh, her yeah. character. She's in like constantly stressed when she starts to feel like, okay, things are going to turn around. I met this nice guy. Things continue to, to get worse. It just struck me as a, as a fun, fun parallel. I mean, and that's the thing with all of these performances is that they're all able to keep them up. You know, it's like, that's why I like this movie so much is that the characters are like feel they don't necessarily feel like real people okay but they feel real unto themselves like i believe they all kind of got to the core of what they wanted to do like speaking actor speaker preparation and all that shit like it seems like maybe they rehearsed maybe they whatever like maybe they just hung out a few times or something but there is like a chemistry between these actors that feels natural that helps pull off a lot of the I don't want to quite say force, but maybe less natural things that need to happen in this movie, right? Um, and it makes kind of the weirder stuff more believable when it goes down for me. You know, for me, I just feel like these actors like really like vibing off each other. They all understood the assignment. You know, I think sometimes in a situation like this with a, with a movie like this, you have like one guy or, or, or whatever, like kind of swinging for the fence and he's kind of in a different movie than everybody else. That can work. I'm not saying it can't. It can also go horribly wrong. But here, everybody does feel like they are in the same movie. And so, yeah, when things get a little bit wild and wacky, they all respond appropriately. And so, yeah, there's a continuity to these performances that that works. It makes it work. Yeah, I think it makes me believe those wackier moments. I like how much time we kind of spend with Anthony Perkins alone, like talking to mother in this movie and, and having the voice in his head, because when he steps outside and has to interact with people, it's like, how the fuck do they not know what's going on with this guy? <laughs> like, how can't they read this dude, you know? But like, that's all also part of the fun because they're so kind of self-absorbed in them in themselves as well that like, you know, maybe they won't find that that much is wrong with this guy. He just seems like 
you know, kind of like a tense fellow or whatever. But that was part of the fun of this, too. Also, a crazy character is Tracy, the reporter. It's like Lois fucking Lane. Like, where yeah. are these characters anymore? You know, like even Lois Lane wasn't like this in the new Man of Steel or anything. Like, I just loved how pushy and nosy and and just like um, that scene where she's going to go up and snoop in the house and Norman pulls up and it's like, what are you doing? Where were you going to go like sneak around my house? Stuff like just so much fun. Like I never see characters as tenacious as her. I want more of that. Man, speaking previously of Nora Ephron, who could have pulled off a great Lois Lane at some point, Meg Ryan. Yeah, well, not to not to get too far off on a tangent, but Nora herself was like a, a journalist before she was a filmmaker. And so like that's why so many of her movies have such attention to detail. You know, as a journalist, details were super important. And that's why she was able to write people in, in such a, a realistic way. Yeah, I think you're right. Meg Ryan definitely could have done that. Man, we okay, we need more more characters like that. <laughs> Jeff Fahey, Superman or Lex Luthor? Probably Luthor, right? Shave that head, those piercing blue eyes. I don't know if I could buy Jeff Fahey playing a character as smart as Lex Luthor. Fahey is great at playing sort of like blue collar, salt of the earth characters. Well, yeah, I remember him mostly from Lawnmower Man as a teen and then and then like latter seasons of Lost as a young Yes, adult. yes. Planet Terror uh, also. Yes, Planet Terror was the one that stuck out to me. Yeah, he's just one of those character actors that whenever I see him show up in things, I'm super excited. Now, in this movie, we see a lot of him. Yes. And, I mean, we see a lot of him. Uh, yeah. we, almost, we almost see all of him. Yes, that might be my favorite sequence in the movie for that reason. Please kick off this sequence discussion. Dwayne Duke is at this bar. He has a run-in with Tracy. And I think he runs into this woman who is credited as Red in the movie. And it's just this woman he picks up at the bar. And they head back to the, the Bates Motel where he has a room while he's working there. And it like cuts from the bar to his room, which is covered in porn. Dude, okay, he's been there, what, a day? He's been there a day, maybe? I love that his, his motel room looks like a college dorm. But it's not just that like he's got porn everywhere, but he's like pasted it to lampshades and yeah. like done weird like serial killer stuff with this room. Yeah. And, and so the two characters are naked. And apparently Jeff Fahey did not want to be fully nude on screen he was uncomfortable with that so that's why when we do see him he's sitting in this like armchair with two lamps and one is positioned right in front of his groin and the other one he's just kind of waving around he's just waving them around yeah yeah he's using them sort of as like spotlights in a burlesque show and he's shining them on his date quote yes. unquote the girl he picked up at the bar as she's doing kind of like a strip tease and they cut to him with like legs Wide open, like, what do they yeah. call that? Akimbo? I don't know. Like, <laughs> he is manspreaded. Yeah, I was going to say manspreader. yep. And and one of the lights is, like, directly, like, you can't not look at it. It's, like, right at his groin. And the other one, he's kind of, like, waving around a little bit. And he's got, like, this weird fucking look on his face. <laughs> like, yes. 
He looks hypnotized. It is so it is so bizarre. Like it almost doesn't I want to say it almost doesn't belong in this movie, but it totally does belong in this movie, you know, in the long run. But it's like so it's it's like right where you're like, okay, I'm watching this scene and I'm like, all right, if this scene is in this movie, like I'm I'm gonna keep watching. Like it can only get more interesting. If memory serves, it happens relatively early like definitely before the first death and so in a way it sort of sets the tone for what's coming for the rest of the movie and if you're not on board with this for this particular like the weirdness of this particular scene then you might not be on board for the rest of it in a weird way it's kind of a primer for what to expect here yeah i think the sequence of events is that you know fahey comes to the motel gets a job Maureen comes to the motel and needs a room. Norman's going to go down and kill her because he thinks she's Marion. You know, he has like these weird flashbacks when he sees her briefcase and there's like that record scratch, like, yep, yep, yep. He's triggered and shit at the diner. And then like he is going to go down and kill her and discovers that she's tried to slit her wrist and takes her to the hospital. When he gets back, that's when Jeff Fahey has like brought this girl home and everything, okay? It happens right after that extremely kind of like you know, dramatic kind of turnaround that I was explaining before, where it's like you get the wind kind of knocked out of you. You think there's going to be a murder. It turns out he's going to save this girl's life. And then there's this weird shit with Jeff Fahey. And then there's like the first actual kill in the phone booth, you know? So it's like wedged in between there as like this cushion of of bizarreness that like helps it all kind of balance out in a strange way you know like i feel if it wasn't there i'd have whiplash of some kind but instead i'm like scratching my head trying to figure out the movie for a minute wondering you know if this guy's got some kind of motive and then the kill started yeah i don't really have much to add i guess i just i love that scene yeah it's very unique it's included because you know they're, they're trying to expand on the fahey thing and like you know he's a sleazeball and all this and you feel bad for the woman that he's kicking out of the room you don't want her to die you want him to kill jeff fahey you know but why is he killing her you know well it's he's got like this like marion disease like he's just you know mother wants him to kill women it feels like it's trying to get away with as much as possible that the first movie couldn't as far as all of that like aggressive sexual stuff because if i'm not mistaken the first movie was like a very early film to show a woman with a toilet in the same frame and like a woman in her brassiere you know and a woman taking like a shower on screen even though we don't see any of your unmentionables but like it was hitchcock you know titillizing and doing that with his material and sort of trying to get 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 a rise out of the audience that way and so it's interesting for psycho 3 for perkins to actually be doing that i don't think there's anything like that in psycho 2 either it stood out to me that there was nudity in this one so i don't think that there was any explicit nudity in psycho 2 i could be mistaken about that this definitely felt gratuitous you know like i feel like there was like there's like a um there's like a progression you know you watch psycho was it 1961 and then Psycho 2 and then Psycho 3 and and like from sequel to sequel, it's getting more sleazy, right? I can't think of a better word than that. It benefits from Anthony Perkins being behind the camera for this because he just really seemed to understand what can work and what couldn't. I think I think if you were to put some of this stuff in Psycho 2, like if you were to do the Jeff Fahey nude moment or or any of the nudity really or any of these bonkers choices it would have been too much too soon right i think psycho 2 is a perfect stepping stone to get to this point i mean whether or not psycho should go this far is a matter of opinion i like it but i think that if they had come right out of the gate with psycho 2 going this nuts that's where they might have lost me 
I think they did a good job of setting up this character in this new world. And then, okay, third movie, boom, we're going to go balls to the wall. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, like, I think, like, we were kind of dancing around earlier. Is like, you're going to make a sequel to Psycho. You can't do this. You have to kind of treat it with a little more respect, right? You, you know, you you don't go off the rails, but prime that audience, you know, for more. And so that if you get to do a part three, that's when you really just start trying stuff, you know, and like really uh, experimenting, if you will, and trying to reach outside of the template to, to find, you know, other ways to express the material. Like, you know, like we've been talking about this whole time, like with how how bizarre and sort of surreal it gets and, and how they're really kind of like playing up the psychosexual nature and revisiting the original, but like getting to do the things that it was restricted back in the day. Another director I was thinking of who would have, I don't know if he could have maybe pulled this off to this degree, but like I was thinking John Waters a lot watching this movie. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I don't know if it's because, you know, Anthony Perkins is a is a queer entertainer. So like he's directing it through that lens, you know? So right, I, right. I, feel, I feel like we could be getting a lot of that, like a lot of that experience and a lot of that sort of filtered through and, and like all the best ways. You know? So like, I, I find all of that extremely interesting and worth rewatching this movie more and more. And I think that that has to, in some ways, you know, add to its perspective, right? And like why we're finding it so different and entertaining and interesting is because he's coming at it from like a completely different view. That went through my mind as well. John Waters didn't didn't cross my mind, but you're sort of getting at a thought that I had. You know, we've been talking about how this one really embraces camp and sort of over the top insane choices. And part of me did wonder um, about Anthony Perkins as uh, an openly gay man um, at the helm of this, what influence that would have had. You know, I kind of want to talk to to some queer folks about this. You know, like, I don't feel qualified enough to comment on it, but I'm sure it had some bearing on the on the choices that were made in this film. I don't think it's a um, coincidence that the first Psycho movie that was helmed by uh, an openly gay filmmaker is as wild as this is, but also contained, right? It never feels like it's lost, like he's lost control of the movie. Right, right. I've read that Anthony Perkins did not feel qualified to direct a movie like this. I don't think he felt that he was as technically proficient enough. I don't think he felt technically proficient to um, to direct a movie. But, you know, the thing is, he understood Norman Bates and he understood the motel. He understood Mother. That's why he was given this, this task. And I don't know that, that he directed this entirely on his own. I think he had an AD or a second unit director who was able to um, sort of help him along the way but you know of course he got all the credit for it but yeah i I would love to know like how anthony perkins sexuality impacted this movie overall there's something you you were saying during all that that really struck a chord and that is that this movie he didn't quite say like this but i'm going to phrase it this way this movie is not a mess right like it is not a mess it is not this kind of shoot for the moon and like accidentally make a good bad movie either for a horror movie with the psycho name on it i'm like this is good like this is legit like i i will walk around like with a shirt with this movie (laughs) i I will recommend it like i gave it four damn stars you know on uh letterboxd and stuff so like i i honestly like commit to this 
there are so many just like interesting choices going on and maybe it has to do with something about how like kind of lackluster modern film has gotten to a degree or at least like the sequels these days right like uh, yeah. i don't even know what what parts we're up to in some movies now but like the last time a sequel tried to kind of like exploit itself like you're saying too about it like it's drive-in it's but it's not quite grindhouse you know like it's it's uh it's campy but it doesn't seem to be pure exploitation like there's they hit a line but they don't go over it in a way and he's so able to tread like that that um i'm just kind of like constantly imp- impressed and when they do callbacks like um i feel like they serve a purpose it's not just like checking off a list it's like oh like they're working it into what's happening they're not just kind of directing the movie to hit these you know, moments that they want from previous films. There are moments in this where I feel like it's trying a little too hard to call back to the original. I don't think that it's entirely inventive in ways that I would love. Real quick, I will I will take it back a little bit because yeah. there are there is legit black and white footage from the previous movies. Well, <laughs> like, well not 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 just that, but uh, like yeah, there's there's black and white footage from the original Psycho. There's some black and white footage from Psycho Two. There's like little moments like when Norman comes in and he sees the high school student that he's killed the one that he he's like slices her throat while she's on the toilet when he runs in and he sees what's happened they recreate that shot of him backing out of the room up against the wall his hand comes to his mouth except this time it's in color and it's not just in color but he's bathed in like bright green light so it's super stylized but they're recreating that beat from the original psycho when norman finds marion's body in the bathroom so like there's little echoes of psycho where i thought okay they wanted to like do like a little oh hey remember that from the original psycho sort of like when in in, in temple of doom when indiana jones reaches for his gun and it's not in his holster I see what you're saying. I just felt more to me like, oh, here's a place we could put it in as opposed to like, let's construct a sequence so that we could like pull off this Easter egg or anything like that, which is kind of how I feel like some movies are doing at times. But uh, maybe, maybe this was all before that kind of line of thinking either, but. This movie does that a little more than I would like, but I do, like I said earlier, I do like when it takes those familiar moments, like the shower scene, and subverts it a little bit. It changes it. It's not the same scene. You know, instead of killing our main character in the shower, she's attempted suicide, right? So so the scene has changed. There aren't many moments like that, but there are like just a couple that I'm like, man, I wish, it's, it's the only reason why I gave this four and not four and a half stars. Yeah, I think because also the new stuff is really good. Like if they had kind of relied more on new stuff as opposed to going back and reminding us, because like I feel like at Psycho 3, you know, the uh, in 86 video stores are open. You could rent Psycho 1 and 2 at this point. You know, it's not like no one remembers. I'm sure it's being talked about, you know, in the press, Psycho 3 is coming out, this and that, go rent Psycho 1. So like the new stuff they do is a lot of fun. Like I genuinely like that sequence where he hides the body in the icebox yes and the cops are there investigating they don't find nothing he opens the thing and he pulls out the bloody ice and starts sucking on it I'm yep, like, yep 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 that's so good like the stuff with the new reporter even though they have the pi in the first movie i feel like it's a very different character i feel like this is really well done i mean because she's sort of like on her own mission she's not hired by anyone to really do this jeff fahey and the new characters and stuff like i just feel like if they kind of stuck to their guns a little more and and shed a bit 
of the first movie and the second movie like it might be five instead of four stars you know by the end of the day. because i just all the crazy inventive stuff that they might have to come up with for instance uh since we're getting a little late i want to just kind of jump to some of our favorite stuff and i'm going to jump a little close to the end when great sequence not in the first movie uh norman gets blackmailed like jeff yeah. Faith figures out that he is dressing up as his mother and still killing people and he is going to hold him hold that over him for money like he hasn't really thought this out is what i'm thinking but you know they get into a fight to the death yeah it's wild and it's a long fight and norman kind of beats him to death with a guitar like this is all new stuff you know and, and it's a lot of fun and then they're like he's driving around with him in the trunk at one point and he's like not dead he gets into the car and they like drive into the lake and he drowns him in the lake like that stuff is all and the lake stuff i feel is a bit of a twist there's a car full of bodies in the lake but norman's in that car too and has to escape I don't know. The new stuff to me was was playing really, really well. Yeah, I, I love that scene. I think I think it's shot a little clunky. You know, if you go back and rewatch the fight, I think that it could be better. But I like that on paper. You know, I like the how that scene plays out as a twist on the original. I do think that Norman maybe needs to find a new place to hide all the bodies. You know, he keeps going back to that like swamp. It's like where everybody is. The cops at this point don't need to check anywhere else. They'll just check the swamp. Yeah, I like that. I liked following that when he has the showdown with mother finally. And you think he's going to kill Tracy and he ends up stabbing mother and obviously you expect tracy to die but uh, no one would ever expect norman to to stab his own mother and so i love that twist on the on, on the whole finale because we, we know it's norman um, but what's he going to do what choices is he going to make i do love that norman spends more time in this one choosing against violence right like he has a couple opportunities to kill people and he chooses not to do it you know he's even going on dates in this one with maureen and i, and I love that the woman that he doesn't attempt to kill the one he is kind of he has kind of given himself permission to love because yeah. I, don't, I don't remember i don't recall mother being specifically pissed off about that relationship but you know she's a nun so of course you know that's the that's the woman he can allow himself to love and then of course he he allows her to die as well that ultimate irony is like you know the whole movie he's trying not to kill her and then he accidentally kills her or like there's an accident and she dies yeah uh, real real quick their date i think that whole sequence there might have been guest directed by david lynch because what the fuck <laughs> like they just cut to that piano player and he is staring right down the barrel of, of the lens and it is just like just like chilling there's just a lot of moments during their date where i'm like expecting you know uh, a little person to start talking backwards or something like that's all i'm saying i didn't catch that detail now i have to go back and rewatch I love that whole ending there when Norm up when Norman comes out and um, there's a great shot of him as mother where you just see his eyes you know yep. like yep. everything else is in shadow and yeah and when he doesn't kill the reporter and he stabs mother instead and and the sawdust and all that kind of comes pouring out and everything like ah oh, really strong ending I guess that is 
a bit of the twist you know i didn't really consider that a twist of an ending but like the whole movie he's kind of fighting with mother for control and at the end he gets the upper hand and you know it's very cathartic he, he kills the avatar of mother right her right, dead right. body her mummified body so like therefore she should be gone for good you know i guess in true psycho fashion she's maybe not necessarily however i just i forget movies all the time because i've watched so many so like it was a lovely joy to see how he kept the memento of mother's entire fucking hand yeah <laughs> how they, they, they didn't search him he could have had a gun on him to like plan an escape he pulls out mother's mummified hand and starts petting that thing and i was just like no logic there but like just great know, visual visually yeah perfect do you want to talk about the kills there's only a couple of them yeah the kills and then quickly like the music i guess <laughs> yeah okay so real quick you mentioned the music did you catch who composed the score to this movie i did not music was by carter burwell i know from working with the cohen brothers he's like a long time oh, wow. composer for the cohen's pretty cool because i was like there's no cues from the original right i mean you get more cues in reanimator of the psychic. yes <laughs> but here they're trying to, to go as far away from that as possible uh, i feel like it's mostly successful i feel like sometimes they they stray a little too far perhaps and it's just the 80s and you just got to be like all right it's no friday the 13th disco theme they managed to, to stay on this side of that i love that disco theme but it's also kind of wacky yeah they never brought it back did they no they did not <laughs> let's go over the the few deaths the few kills okay so if memory serves we have three three dead people we have um the phone booth red in the phone booth and then we have i didn't catch her name but the the girl who dies in the bathroom we got jeff fahey in the fight with norman but as far as mother killing people is it just the two girls I believe so. The one in the phone booth is the most kind of interesting, I think, or visually like they, they harken back to the original kill in the shower. They literally cross cut between footage of I didn't need that. Um, it would be interesting to see a version without that and then just rely again on a new uh, instead of bringing that in. But still works. I wrote in my notes, the phone booth is the new shower. I think, I think I wrote that before I saw the cross cuts. I was just thinking like, oh, it's a woman in a confined space and she has nowhere to go and she's going to get stabbed to death. And so, yeah, I really loved that scene. I could probably do without the references to the shower scene because I picked up on that without them. And then I really like the bathroom one, although it does play a little strangely for me because if somebody walked in on me in the bathroom, I would be a little more shocked. This girl seems to be used to people walking in on her. So... Look, I would also feel weird if someone walked in while I was sitting on the toilet. But <laughs> there there was like this myth growing up that women go to the bathroom together. I'm not saying it's true or right. I'm just saying this is what you hear in movies a lot growing up. So this was the 80s and it just figured maybe this is one of those things I don't know about where girls just aren't as kind of stuck up about that. Especially if she sees like an elderly woman, you know, maybe she's like, You're, are you, you know, could think she's lost or confused. Just give me a minute. Like, I just think it's kind of crazy in the first place that the scene revolves around a woman taking a leak. You know, I, I feel like you know you see a guy's taking a leak a lot in, in horror films and regular movies for christ's sake especially in comedies but it was sort of one of those reverses maybe that was like a thing you know we should normalize this like this is just somebody going to the bathroom like you know uh if you're in a vulnerable state you know someone surprises you and that mm -hmm. would be a horrible thing to go 
So, what did you think of the effect there uh, when her throat gets sliced? Pretty, pretty good. I mean, it's not Tom Savini per se, but like the industry at this point, you know, I think that they're they're doing all right. No, you know, you know who who was the special effects artist on this one? Nicotero. Michael Westmore of the Westmores. We've talked quite a bit about them on the monsters that made us, but Michael Westmore was like the longtime makeup guy for Star Trek. He did a lot of Deep Space Nine. Uh, he worked uh. on the movies First Contact, Insurrection. So he's of the famous Westmore makeup family, but particularly noteworthy for us here because I know you and I both like Star Trek. Oh, and he worked on like the Rocky movies, Blade Runner, Rambo. There, so there you go. They're not really slumming it as much as you would think here. No, right? it, was a, it was a good makeup effect. In fact, I, I wanted to check to make sure it wasn't like Tom Savini or uh, Rick Baker or somebody that I knew, you know? Wow. Well, that's very awesome. I mean, that makes this movie even better. I like knowing that. Um, yeah, I thought that the phone booth kill was very graphic. And, you know, kids are going to be like, what's that thing? What's a phone booth? Like, right. where? That's even more fun is that like phone booths like that kind of don't exist around here anymore. <laughs> I think I just really like phone booth kills. There's a really great one in the remake of The Blob. And I'm just, I like, I feel like I want to find more phone booth kills. It's, a, it's another pull of Hitchcock. Wasn't that in The Birds, too? Wasn't there, like, someone trapped in the phone booth? There the is bird? somebody trapped in a phone booth. Smashing yep. into it and all that. So, again, like, I like how he's kind of pulling from more than just Psycho. He's like, let's pull from lots of hitch. And the movie Phone Booth was supposed to be a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> was it really? Originally, yeah. It was written for Hitchcock and then it got made way later. Was that a Schumacher movie? Yeah, I think it was Joel Schumacher with Colin Farrell. Wow, Dan. I don't know about you, but I don't know how much more I could... I mean, I probably could keep going, but like, is there anything uh, specifically we didn't mention that you'd like to talk about before we get on out of here? I got to go uh, check out of the old motel and get back on the road. I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered all of it. The main takeaway here for me is that Psycho 3 is a lot of fun. You know, I don't think enough people have seen it, and I and I really feel like it, it deserves a little more attention. As much as it does make some safe choices, right? Like we've talked about some of the things that I wish, you know, like the callbacks to the original, like they could have done without that. That all kind of takes a back seat to all of the new things that they bring to this movie. All the, the wacky stuff, all of the bold swings. Having uh, Anthony Perkins in the director's chair here definitely makes a difference for me. Look, man, if you're if you're into like 80s slasher stuff, this is psycho by way of 80s slasher. It does it really, really well in a really fun way. That's about sums it up for me. Yeah, I, I second that. Absolutely. You know, this one's a fun one. Like it's even got teenagers, right? Like I, I, that was another thing that I'm like, oh, it's classic 80s. It's got like teenagers for no reason, right? They sort of wrote this in so that it was like set during a high school football game. So all these kids come to stay and party. And so that even makes it more of like an 80s slasher. So Dan, like before we get out of here, I'm glad you brought that up because that I was watching the movie going like, okay, that's the movie people are expecting. That's Friday the 13th. Like, those kids, those are the Camp Crystal Lake characters. Yes. But they're hanging out at Bates Motel, okay, yeah. for the yeah. big game, right? But the murderers 
too preoccupied to kill them. Like he's got a prior stuff going on, you know, so he never gets to them. Like, it's so funny how it kind of subverts even what's happening in contemporary horror during the time um, saying like, look, like this is a little flash of like what else is out there Friday the 13th, but we're doing this. Like we're taking it back a little bit and it's a little more not growing up, but like it just feels a little bit more for like an older crowd maybe and less for like a teenage crowd. Yeah, I think so. I just love that it maintains that vibe uh, while also doing something entirely different. Damn. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself, so I won't. Um, (laughs) Before we get out of here, it is a tradition. You have other shows going on out here, not just your residency on this show, not just the show we have together, The Monsters That Made Us, which... Although on hiatus, you can still listen to our entire back catalog right now up there at cageclub.me. But Dan, you mentioned it a couple of times, but give us give us the real deal here. Yes. So um, I co-host a podcast on the Cage Club Podcast Network called The Podcast Around the Corner. My co-host Shawnee and I are doing like a deep dive on Nora Ephron's whole career. We have gotten as far as Sleepless in Seattle. We've released that episode, so that's available now. We've done everything in chronological order, so everything up to Sleepless in Seattle is available. Uh, We've got a couple interviews that we're excited to release, so those are forthcoming. You can find everything for that on uh, cageclub.me. We're also on Instagram at the Nora Podcast, and we're on Twitter at Nora Podcast as well. Shawnee keeps that Twitter pretty active, so there's always always stuff to check out there. Aside from that, I, I mean, at the time of this, the release of this episode, you and I have both just done uh, an episode of 1999, the podcast where we oh, right. talked about Wild Wild West with Joey and John. That's a fun one. I was the only one on that podcast who had anything positive to say. I, I said a couple positive things. <laughs> I'm, oh, being, I'm being a little bit uh, hyperbolic. I suppose. No, no, no. Dan, Dan, you were the fan, and that was a tough. That was a tough one for you. Thank you for taking that bullet. I, I, uh, I will owe you one. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those situations where I knew going into it what it was going to be and like I was not going to change any minds. So only had to speak from my own personal experiences, but it was a fun conversation nonetheless. So definitely check that out. And I think that's it for the podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dan Cologne on Letterboxd at Dan Cologne. Sweet, sweet. And hopefully we'll get you back here soon. That'd be great. You know, I guess until next time, that'll be it for this episode of the part threes that made us. 